0: I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 1 for our evening's sermon text. Before we read the Lord's holy word, let's pray for him to illuminate our hearts by his Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you for this great gift that you have given us of your holy scriptures, so that we may know you and that we may know what you require of us. And so, Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit and that he would be with us as we hear your word read and preached. We pray that you would shape our hearts by this proclamation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 1. but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we come to this first psalm called the Gateway of the Psalms. Now the Psalms, as you know, are a book of prayers. Uh, they were often sung, but not universally, they were, uh, and so I think it's better to think of the Psalms as a prayer book than as a hymn book. And One of the things that you realize when you pray through the Psalms, which I encourage you to do, is that you learn that you have no idea how to worship God rightly. but it's the Psalms that teach you how to worship. A study guide that I once had in the scriptures referred to the Psalms as a book that illustrates the varied exercises of the regenerated soul. The prayers of the person who knows God and has been made alive by the Holy Spirit. And so Psalms one and two help you understand how to interpret, and how to pray the rest of the book of the Psalms. So tonight we study Psalm 1, where it talks about the ethics of the Psalms. And next week we'll talk about Psalm 2, which deals with prophetic issues in the Psalms and who God's king is. But the key lesson that we learn from Psalm 1 is that if you're going to worship God rightly, You need right standing with God. And you need something deeper than outward obedience. You must delight in the law, in your inner being, in order to worship him properly. And so if you delight in the law of the Lord, and if you keep the law of the Lord, you can draw near to God with true confidence. Well... So we divide this psalm into three sections. Verses 1 and 2, the delight of the wicked and the righteous. Second, in verses 3 and 4, the fruit of the righteous and the wicked. And third, in verses 5 and 6, the reward of the wicked and the righteous. So first, in verses 1 and 2, we read about the delight of the wicked and the righteous. It says, blessed is the man. Well, the word here is probably actually better translated happy because Hebrew uses two different words for blessed and for happy. And the word that it uses here is the word that is used for happy. Happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked and so on. However, there is a difference between the happiness that comes from the Lord and the happiness that comes, let's say, when you... Got a nice pair of socks on Christmas a few days ago. It's a different sort of happiness. And in fact, you can see this illustrated very well in the Greek. For the Greek translation of this text uses the same Greek word that we read in 1 Timothy 6.15, which says that Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, or again in Greek, the happy, satisfied, joyful, and only sovereign. This kind of happiness or blessedness or joy comes from God himself as its source. The Lord is all blessedness in himself. And so when you delight yourself in the law of the Lord, in the teaching of God, you will find that God will pour out satisfaction on you out of his own abundant and perfect store of joy. And so what we find from these two verses is that the wicked delight in evil, but the righteous find delight in the law of the Lord. And so here we have in verse 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a warning against the activities of the wicked, those who swear their allegiance not to God, but to sin. And we see... All the aspects of sin involved here, of thinking and behaving and belonging. For first, the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, does not pattern his thoughts after the wicked. As it says in Isaiah 57, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The turbulence and the turmoil of those who set their minds on sin. Nor does this person stand in the way of sinners. Now this word here, the way, refers to your way of life, the way that you go through life. And So the sinners that we're warned against here pass their lives in course and manifest sin, as one commentator put it. And finally, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Does not belong in fellowship among those who publicly mock God and his law. Do not join in fellowship with those who make the things that are divine, holy, and true a subject of frivolous jesting. Now, of course, we do spend time with sinners, as Jesus did, to bring them the word of the Lord. And because We have to work and live in the world, as Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 5. But this is different from truly belonging, from making your home and considering as your family those who live their lives in this way. For if your delight is in God, your family is here in the church. And so you have compassion and you do spend time with those who are outside. But but you do not belong there. You belong here. Now, of course, one of the challenges is that it can be hard to distinguish true godliness from that which merely appears godly, isn't it? And that's why you need new life. That's why you need the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It's what makes the difference. It's what makes it possible to understand and to know that which is true godliness. And so, as you are, have been reborn by the Holy Spirit, you will find that you delight in the law of the Lord. As it says that the righteous delight in the law of the Lord, and on his way he meditates day and night. Well, as most of you are surely aware, the word law here is the Hebrew word Torah. Torah. Well, this Hebrew word has a wide range of meaning, and it can extend all the way from being a single command of God all the way out to the entire word of God. And so here it's probably best encapsulated as his delight is in the teaching of the Lord, in all the ethical teaching that God has to give to you. And what you find as you as you are made alive by the Holy Spirit, and as you study the Word, you find that the law reflects God's character. As it says in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And as it says in Leviticus 19, too, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so the call to delight in the law is not just a call to delight in words on the page or commands of what you should do. It's a call to delight in the Lord Himself. For you see God's character in His law. And as it says in Psalm 37:4, that when you delight yourself in the Lord, He will give you the desires of your heart. And so, as you seek after the Lord because you delight in Him, you will meditate on His teaching day and night. This word here refers to muttering the law, repeating the law, speaking the law to yourself over and over again, repeating it to yourself, especially out of delight in it, the same way that you might gaze at a precious jewel from every angle, whereas you might go to an art museum and study the details of a fine painting. When I was a kid, I walked a quarter mile gravel road home from school every afternoon from the bus stop. And every, there were potholes on this road, and they were filled with gravel. And I loved sound when I was a kid. And I would just stand there for minutes at a time just pushing those rocks together in the water because I loved the sound that they made. And we all have had experiences like that of enjoying something so much that we just take it in. And that's what it is to meditate on God's teaching, on His Word, Delight in it. But you know, delighting in God's law leaves no room for delighting in your own ways because you recognize that your ways are sinful. So, this is a call to measure your own story by Scripture's story, not the other way around. You take God as the one who is allowed to tell you that you are wrong. You do not tell God or His Word that He is wrong. But rather, he is the one who is allowed to correct you and to change your life. And as you meditate on the law, you'll learn something about yourself. You'll learn that you can't live up to God's holiness. For God is the one who is right, and you are the one who is wrong. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who can keep the law perfectly? I can't. You can't. Not a single person who has walked the face of this earth can keep the law perfectly. Consider the example of the Apostle Paul. Who knew the law better than Paul? He says that he was advanced among many in his own generation as a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet what does he write in Romans chapter 7? I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And even if you were able to keep the law perfectly on the outside, you cannot attain these higher inward perfections of what Jesus speaks and so your meditation on God's teaching can only lead you to despair if you take it seriously enough and that's why you must turn to Jesus for Jesus alone perfectly kept all the law as Paul continues on from what he said in Romans 7 he says thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, and he delighted in the law perfectly. Not just outward obedience, but inward faithfulness and joy. He lived a perfectly sinless life. You know where that sinless life led him. His obedience to God led him to the cross, where he paid the penalty for your sins. And so it's only in Christ that you can be relieved of the burden in law, relieved of the burden of the law, excuse me, and left with delight in the law. It's only in Christ that you can see the law for what it is, a window into God's character, and a guide to life for your good. And So God doesn't promise you a life of constant hedonic happiness because you delight in in the law. After all, Jesus' delight led him to great suffering for his people. In this life, you too will struggle. You'll struggle from your sins, you'll struggle from the sins of others, you'll struggle from the effects of the fall. But you are being led on to a life of perfect joy, eternal joy, joy with God, and seeing him face to face as your highest good and a life where you will never be able to sin again. So that's the delight of the person who does delight in the law of the Lord. And so being transformed by this delight in God's teaching, the righteous then go on as we see in verses 3 and 4 to bear fruit while the wicked Are only fit to be scattered. For the righteous are like trees planted by streams of water. I don't know how many trees you know. I have a couple I count as very good friends. But trees love to be planted by streams of water. Just look at the creek over there on the church's property line and see how many trees are planted there. It's a very, very pleasant place for a tree. And so God provides for you out of his law. You can actually picture the streams of water as the law that feeds you as his people. God's word provides for you. And in fact, in scripture, God's words are compared to trees. As it says in Isaiah 65 that God's people, it says, like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And so in the Lord's provision, you will lack absolutely nothing that you need for your health, and for your delight as one of his children. And so being provided for by God's word, you will bear good fruit, and you will bear fruit in its season. You will bear the regular, ordinary, expected fruit from the food of God's word. That's why it says specifically, yields its fruit in its season. A tree yields fruit in season just as the natural course of things. It can't help it. It's a tree. It's what it does. So when you are fed on God's word, you can't help but bear fruit. And what is fruitfulness to God? Living a holy life. Gathering together for worship like you're doing now. And delighting in that worship and bringing other people in, as the fruit of a healthy tree is meant to reproduce the tree. So as you live a holy life, you will be a part of God's plan to make disciples. And it says here that its leaf does not wither. You will not wither. You will be resilient in God's word. A tree that is planted by these streams of water will be able to to endure drought, pestilence, the ravages of time. And so you too, when you are fed on God's word, you will endure whatever life throws at you. You will withstand everything that life brings your way and you will keep bearing fruit. And indeed, it's often the pressure of the hot season, the season where the leaf is most likely to wither. That's often the conditions that bring the best fruit. The flavorful agricultural produce, such as wine or coffee, they bear the flavors of their growing conditions. And often, the best wine and the best coffee, the best fruit comes from the most difficult conditions. That's why you see so often in TV shows and movies saying, oh, this, this wine is the 1996, a ah, very good year. It's not because it's old. It's because that year may have been particularly hot or particularly difficult for plants, and so it produced the best crop. And so it is often with the Christian life that your suffering brings the greatest fruit for the Lord. For the godly life does genuinely bring the threat of withering. But in all that you do, you will prosper when fed on God's word. Just as Christ himself fed on God's word and bore incredible fruit. For he led a perfectly holy life. He worshipped the Father perfectly. See in his temptations by the devil how he knows the scriptures. Even though, as far as we're aware, he had no formal education in them. And yet, what did this obedience lead him to? What did his knowledge of God's ways lead him to? It led him to the cross, where he died to reconcile every elect sinner to God. But Christ didn't stay dead. No, he endured. For he was raised from the dead, and he continues ministering even to this day as he intercedes for you, his saints. And he will endure even to the last day, when he will return again, and raise all of you from the dead so that you will indeed endure even your natural death. That's the fate and the provision of the righteous, of those who delight in the law of God, but the wicked are different, for the wicked are fruitless. This verse 4 is simple and to the point. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The very brevity... Of this saying calls you to just forget about the wicked. So much to say about the fate of the righteous and so little to say about the fate of the wicked. Provision, faithfulness, endurance, you can't say any things about any of these things about the chaff. Humans can't digest chaff. It plays no role in bearing fruit. All that they could do with the chaff was toss it up into the wind as they would take their grain, and they would be on the side of a hill. There would be a flat space about the size of this sanctuary. And on a breezy day, they would toss all the grain up into the air. And the grain, being too heavy, would settle on the floor again. But the chaff would be blown away and forgotten. The wicked may think that they do something significant in this world, something that lasts. But what they are doing is light and insignificant enough to be carried away by a light breeze. No matter how much wickedness may impress or seem to achieve in this world, that's all that there is to it. And so consider Asaph's Psalm, Psalm 73, as he reflects on the apparent prosperity of the wicked. What does he say? I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. But what changes his mind? When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So Asaph, when he considered God and his ways, when he met with the Lord, he saw the true end of the wicked, which is to perish. As we turn now to the reward of the wicked and righteous in verses 5 and 6, where we see that the wicked perish, but the righteous are known by the Lord. For it says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So so often in Hebrew poetry, we see two consecutive lines that are meant to say the same thing. They interpret each other and amplify each other. And that's what's happening here. And here, most likely, we have a reference not so much to the final judgment. Remember, this author is a member of the people of Israel. But most likely, this is referring to those judgments that come in the course of life. For such people who are wicked will be recognized as unfit to stand in the congregation of the righteous. And so when the judgment is handed down, they will be cast out. They will be separated from the righteous, not allowed to be a part of services at the temple or the tabernacle. Now, of course, this does not only refer to that particular time but it does point ahead to the final judgment when all those who do not trust in Christ will find a rude surprise waiting them they may be proud and confident of great things for themselves but all of this will prove to be just short term profit for in the end God will cut them down but here's the thing wickedness is found in surprising places There are people who claim to be godly and yet you can see by their, for example, their unkindness, their rudeness, that they have no love for God and his ways. You know what? Wickedness may even be found in your own heart. What makes you think that you will stand? It's only faith in Christ that can ensure that you will stand in the congregation of the righteous. For Christ crucified in himself all the wickedness that is in your heart and it is destined to die. And he calls you to walk in his ways as the fruit of this salvation. For the Lord, it says, knows the way of the righteous. Best understood as the Lord has regard for the way of the righteous. And the Lord especially has regard for his son and his ways. For God Proclaimed himself well pleased with his son. And you'll note that this is a pronouncement that comes after Jesus has proved his faithfulness in fulfilling all righteousness. Because Jesus lived his life in the righteous way, God accepts him as his son and accepted his offering, his sacrifice. And God proved it by raising him from the dead. And now he gives you his Holy Spirit so that you may walk in Christ's footsteps. And so that's Psalm 1. It teaches you how to pray the Psalms rightly, how to worship the Lord rightly. If you delight in the teaching of the Lord and walk in his ways, God will establish you. But of course, the trouble comes when you know, when you know how far short of the law you fall, which is why Jesus is your mediator For he obeyed perfectly on your behalf and the Lord has welcomed him into the holy places in heaven to be heard by God. And now he welcomes you into, as it says in Hebrews 10, that you are now welcomed to enter into the holy places with confidence because Christ is your mediator and because when you put your faith in Christ, God makes you righteous in his sight. And when you entrust yourself to Christ, God hears your prayers and he establishes you. But it gets even better, for he doesn't even hear your prayers always the way you intend them, but he always hears them as they ought to be, the way they should be. And so he may not always answer your prayers the way you were hoping. But he does always answer them for your good. Storms will come in this life. There will be opportunities for you to wither. But you will be able to withstand them. Because God causes you to walk in righteousness in union with Christ as you heard Pastor Steve talk about from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. And in the end you will be upheld in the judgment. For in Christ, he has regard for your ways. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us this gift of faith in Christ. And even though we know that we fall far short of your ways, and we are so wicked by nature that we can't even see just how far short we fall, nevertheless, Father, We thank you and praise you that you are kind to us and that you welcome us into your presence in Christ and that being changed by him and with him as our mediator, we are able able to worship you rightly the way that we should. Amen.